Hello and welcome, Simon Turpin. Hi, David. Good to be with you. Yeah, good to be with you, Simon. Thank you very much for joining us. Simon, tell us everything we need to know about you in 60 seconds. <laughs> OK, so my name's Simon Turpin. I work for the Ministry of Answers and Genesis in the UK, which is an apologetics ministry. I'm married to my wife, uh, Jessica, and we homeschool our seven children. We've got two sets of twins. Uh, both sets are non-identical. And yeah, we live in Leicester and we love serving the Lord here. And we're very passionate as, as well as about speaking for Answers in Genesis, also speaking on the topic of home education. And you can check that out at a website we run called leadingthemout.com, which David helped to set up. Oh, well, brilliant. Well, what we'll do, Simon, is we'll make sure that there's a link wherever you're watching or listening to this interview, there'll be a link to to that website as well, as well as a link to the book that we're talking about today. Uh, Simon, take us back to the beginning. How and when did you become a Christian? Um, so I grew up in, in a Christian family. My dad um, uh, didn't grow up in a Christian family. He he came to Christ through a street preacher um, and preaching the gospel. And he was coming back from work and he had the gospel late, late on in his, I think he was uh, 1920. And so my parents were both from non-Christian families. So I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian family. So we would hear the gospel etc go to church but i i would say i didn't become a christian probably till my late very late teens early 20s had a real conviction of sin um from that foundation was was implanted in me the way i was living my life and i knew i needed uh, to confess that sin come to christ and be forgiven for a long time i would have lived under the assumption you know i was a, was a christian um just because of the, the 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 background i had and everything like that but actually not truly knowing the gospel or truly knowing Christ. So I am thankful for the the the, the home I grew up in, but, uh, you know, didn't come to faith till later on in life yet. Yeah. Just to clarify, Simon, was that in 1920 that your dad was saved or was he aged between 19 and 20? <laughs> <laughs> no, my dad wasn't saved in 1920. No, no. Uh, yeah. He was aged between 19 and 20. Yeah, as you can tell, my accent's sort of hard to guess sometimes. <laughs> I grew up in the Northeast, and then uh, my dad actually got a job as a pastor down in the south in London. So sometimes my accent varies between the north and the south, unfortunately. <laughs> well, very good. Well, I'm glad I checked about that. <laughs> when did you feel according to ministry? And tell us how you ended up at Answers in Genesis. Yeah, so um, sort of in my mid-20s, I um, felt the call to start um, looking into full-time ministry. So I did some... I did three years doing a, a bachelor's degree and then I went to work for a church. Uh, I did that for about five years and enjoyed that experience. And, and while I was there, I also um, did a master's degree. And as my time was coming to an end at the church that I was working with, um, I'd already started writing a number of articles for Answers in Genesis online on their website. And I was, I was in the last year of my time at the church and my wife and I were wondering what we're going to do next. Should we stay with the church or do we feel God calling us on to, to something else? And I actually bumped into Ken Ham's younger brother, Steve Ham, who was working for AIG at the time. He was on a speaking tour of the UK um, close to where I was living and went to the meeting and just got speaking to him. And he said, look, there's, there's a role available in the UK ministry. We haven't had someone here for a while. Would you be interested in coming along? And so... Uh, we met. I went over to the States and they said, look, please, please join the ministry. Come along. 
And so we felt God call us to, to come and work for the Ministry of Answers and Genesis. That was back in 2015. So we up and left St. Albans, where we were living in at the time, just outside of North London. And we um, came to live in Leicester. Yeah, oh, that's so so good to hear. And Simon, you're doing such a great job there. You know, answering Genesis is is such a great uh, ministry, isn't it? And and yeah, really flying the flag for that over here in, in in the UK. So very thankful for that. As well as your work at Answers in Genesis, you're also an author, as you've mentioned, and you've written a number of very helpful books. Your latest is Adam First and the Last. Tell us about this one, Simon. Yeah. Um. So, um, I've, my first book was Scoffers. Um, basically an exposition of 2 Peter chapter 3, applying that, um, you know, trying to bring out the, the text, what that means for us and how we see that relevant today. And, and and the new book, Adam, the first and the last, is basically over the last sort of 10 years, there's a lot of stuff that's been written on the historical Adam. A lot of evangelical scholars have published either books or articles given their position on Adam. And sadly, a lot of them, um, deny a historical Adam or would argue that he was um, some early hominids in evolutionary history. And so there was a plethora of books written on this subject and no one was really taking a stance on the text of Genesis as real history that God created man supernaturally from the dust of the ground, created Eve from the side of the rib of Adam. And so I thought, you know, this needs to be addressed. And I know one or two other sort of uh, Christians have, have, have written on uh, defending Adam, but I thought there's a, there's, a, there's another way to do this. And so I, I sort of thought I'd divide the book into two. The first half of the book would deal with Adam and Genesis and his history there. And the second half of the book um, would look on the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, because sadly, when these scholars reject a historical Adam or try and interpret him, as something other than the supernaturally uh, someone is supernaturally created from the dust of the ground, they end up actually pulling a thread out in scripture and they end up denying many doctrines um, that are foundational in scripture. In fact, the, there are certain scholars which are hi highlight in the book who, who would even go as far to say that in Jesus's earthly ministry, he was mistaken on creation and the flood because he was limited by the, the the perspective of his time a number of authors have even gone so far as to say look there's there's no such thing as original sin because if you deny there was a first man called adam then what do you need saving from what is sin and so yeah i, I deal with those uh issues in the book and many others no, so true. What, what What is the fruit of holding a position like that, Simon? Because some people will say, well, you know, we live in this postmodern world, don't we, where, you know, truth is subjective. You can you can pick and choose what you believe. If you if you're consistent with that and you, you deny that Adam is a real historical figure, what where, where can that actually lead to somebody, you know, in error? Well, it'll lead you, David, into all sorts of theological error. I've just mentioned two of them sort of the denial of original sin, that we are sinners in Adam, that um, we're not creatures born into the world goods and then distorted by uh, the environment around us. Uh, or you can even say, well, Jesus was in error in some of the things he taught. But that's just sort of a consistent application of scholars who would believe in evolution and millions of years and adding that to the Bible. Because once you do that, they realize, look, if, if this bit in Genesis is not true, 
Well, the New Testament is connected to Genesis, and there's a lot of teaching in the New Testament that is related, and therefore that can't be true as well. And so they have to sort of reinterpret a lot of these doctrines that as evangelicals or as reformed people we would believe and hold on to. And so, yeah, there's 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 a, a, there's a massive consequence. Once you start to reinterpret the beginning, then you of the Bible, then you'll interpret everything else that flows from it. Because if you've if you've ever heard Ken Ham speak, Ken loves to point out that Genesis one to eleven is the foundation of the whole of Scripture. If you remove that foundation, then everything else will begin to collapse. If you imagine the foundation of the house, the first thing you do when you build a house is you lay the foundation because you need that foundation in place for everything else to, to go up and to be secure. Well, Genesis 1 to 11 is that foundation to scripture. And so once you deny it as history, as God acting in certain ways in history, then you'll begin to unravel many doctrines such as original sin, such as um, the infallibility of scripture, the, the clarity of scripture and so many other doctrines. What, what, Even what it means to be made in the image of God, what is male and female? Because we know that when we look at the world today, people are confused about what it is to be male and female. But if you don't know where you came from, then it's no surprise that people are confused about what it is to be male and female. But notice God in the beginning says he made man male and female. Jesus backs that up in Matthew 19 in a discussion with the Pharisees on the issue of remarriage and divorce. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So if you get the beginning wrong, David, there's so many other places that you will get wrong in scripture. Yeah, so true. We live in a generation, don't we, where under the guise of tolerance and niceness, a growing number of people have lost the ability or even the willingness to contend for the faith. But affirming someone in their error or sin is not actually the loving or the right thing to do, is it, Simon? Tell us about that. No, it's not, David. And and in, in the opening of my book, I sort of touch upon this. And I mentioned in Jude, if you read um, the book of Jude, it's only one short chapter. You can read it maybe <laughs> in about five minutes or you spend a bit longer in meditation on it. But Jude opens up telling um, the people he's writing to. He wanted to write to them about their common salvation. But he didn't. Why? Because certain men had crept in amongst them and they were distorting the word of god so although jude wanted to talk about this great theme of salvation that he had in common with these other believers which was obviously important to him the truth of salvation he realized that he couldn't because there was something else that he needed to touch upon and he was really getting them to contend these are his own words to contend for the faith that was once delivered to uh the saints and that word for contend literally it's like a, a wrestling term you to agonize for yeah, yeah. the faith and a, and a lot of people today sadly don't want to do that in the guise of being tolerant or, or loving but you're not being tolerant or loving to someone who's in doctrinal error it's not it's not a good thing see many people think well the good thing would just be to keep silent and don't say anything about it but that's not biblical the bible tells us you know we're to confront we can but to do it in love and when people go off and they sort of place the bible to one side and just give their opinion no we're to correct that um we're to rebuke gently and and sharply but we're to, we, we are to do that we are to correct we are to confront um when false teaching comes into the church 
so helpful. Thank you, Simon. You give an example of the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who believes that young earth creation is actually false teaching. This is a man that is popular and respected within the wider Christian world, but is an example that popular doesn't always mean to be trusted. What does he say exactly about me, Simon? Yeah, well, N.T. Wright's, um, he's an intelligent guy, but he's got one of those names that really help because N.T. Wright is N.T. Wrong when it comes yeah. when it comes to this issue. Yeah, sadly, I mean, N.T. Wright, if you go back and read his commentary, he wrote a commentary on Romans a long time ago. And in that commentary on Romans, in Romans chapter 5, he does actually defend a, a historical Adam. And if you move on to today, actually, he completely rejects a historical Adam. And he has really been influenced in his in his theology, obviously, by the idea of evolution and millions of years. And so now he rejects there was a first man called Adam. He just sees uh, Genesis as, as sort of telling the story of Israel's origins, that sort of thing. Um, and he would say of young earth creationists, he actually says, in, in his book, Surprised by Scripture, that um, young earth creationists are like the, that annoying uncle or the cousin you get who comes around once a year at Christmas time that you want to try and avoid when they come around. And he describes young earth crea creationists as basically they're like, um, oh, the word's gone from my head now, but he, he describes as, as, as Gnostics. Sorry, that was the word, Gnostics. And, you know, that's that's just really off because he's a historian and he should know if he reads the early history of, of the church even until the time of the reformation and you look at what the early church believed on the book of genesis for example just about every not all of them but just about the majority of the early church fathers believed in the historicity of uh the book of genesis for example one guy the theotlus the Olophysis of Antioch, sorry. Um, he he writes about this. He he responds to a pagan uh, in his day, and he contrasts the, the God of the Bible versus the Greek and Roman gods. And the history in Genesis he uses to refute the history of Greece and Egypt, which was obviously based upon a sort of a long period of time. And he actually talks about the fact that, look, we know our history is reliable and there's not even 6,000 years have passed yet. He clearly yeah. believed the genealogies um, were reliable. And then you get to play people like Calvin and Luther, and they're talking about, look, 6,000 years, that's about how old the world is. God created in six days. In fact, Calvin and Luther both have to correct the Roman Catholic Church at the, the, of their day because they were saying, well, Genesis, is, the days are just like a metaphor, but they 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 were correct in the Roman Catholic Church. So when N.T. Wright tries to say young earth creationists are Gnostics, he's actually missing the history and the teaching of the church for the last you know, 2000 years, which who have historically stood on uh, Genesis being a reliable um, history of the creation of the world, of the destruction of the world through the flood and the entrance of sin through Adam, Adam's disobedience in the garden. So if if anyone's moving towards Gnosticism, it's more like anti rights rather than young earth creationists. Yeah. And it's a great reminder, isn't it? It doesn't matter how popular somebody is. We're to test everything against the word of God, aren't we? Whenever yeah. we're listening to a podcast or a, or a sermon, have your Bible in your hand and check it. 
yeah. against scripture. Uh, William Lane, yeah, William Lane Craig is a is another popular uh, teacher that has introduced his own interpretation of the historical Adam. What, what does he teach? Yeah, he William Lane Craig um, released a book either last year or the year before, "The Quest for the Historical Adam," and he tries to say, well, the early chapters of Genesis are so he calls it mytho history. He's building on sort of a, a really uh, liberal scholar. And he basically says, look, you can't take these things absolute uh, as history. You can't just take them as fact. There's obviously symbolic language being used here. And, you know, he would say it'd be absurd to take it as actual history because he would say, well, science refutes it. And if you take it as history, then basically the Bible's wrong. And so he tries to interpret that the early chapters of Genesis as mytho history he sort of he mocks in his book and he's done a number of podcasts um that he's appeared on youtube you can find these all over the place where he'll ridicule the idea that there was a serpent in the garden who spoke to adam and eve that even god walked in the garden in genesis 3 8 he would say that's that just doesn't make sense why how could god walk among the midst of the garden and so he tries to read genesis as as mytho history in fact sadly william lane craig is one of those scholars who would bring into question the doctrine of original sin. He would say, well, look, Romans 5 isn't even clear. And you can see how he just he doesn't just undermine Genesis. He undermines the New Testament, denying the sufficiency and the clarity of Scripture. Because if you go to the Reformers, if you go to the early church fathers, they'll be crystal clear on the fact that Romans 5 teaches us uh, the doctrine of original sin that we are sinners in Adam. Adam is the federal head of the human race. And so, yeah, William Lane Craig, sadly, is another one of those evangelicals who succumbed to um, the teaching of the day of evolution millions of years as, as factual science. When it's not, it's based upon the philosophy, of, philosophy of, of naturalism. But sadly, William Lane Craig has succumbed to that and he's had to reinterpret the Bible. Much more important than what N.T. Wright or William Lane Craig thinks. What did Jesus believe and and say about the Old Testament, Simon? Yeah, uh, it's one thing you cannot deny. And I, I was in Cambridge and I was speaking uh, to some folks there a couple of weeks ago about Jesus. It was at a church in Cambridge, you know, an academic place, um, Cambridge's. And I was just saying, look, you can't deny because liberal scholars will tell you this, that when you speak of the historical Jesus, when we look at Jesus and his teaching in the Gospels, Jesus had the highest view of Scripture. You know, Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word um, you know, comes out from the mouth of God. He said Scripture cannot be broken. And, you know, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away and in fact when you look at how jesus treats the old testament he he believes adam and eve are historical figures as i've already mentioned matthew 19 mark chapter 10 he quotes genesis 1 and 2 as real history he he mentions um in in luke 11 that the account of cain and abel and that abel was the first person to be murdered um in the history of the world and just think about that jesus said Abel was the first murder that took place in this world. Well, would that be true if evolution 
would was is true. Well, no, it wouldn't be because there were many murders before Adam and Eve, before before Abel. But yet Jesus says, no, Abel was the first person to be murdered. Jesus uh, refers to to Noah and the flood. He refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. He refers to to Jonah and the great fish. All these, if you think yeah. about all those accounts that I've mentioned, David critical scholars will mock and reject those things but jesus believed each and every one of them jesus had the highest view of scripture and so if we're christians i often say this to people look if if you have a different view of scripture to jesus then you have the wrong view of scripture yeah amen so true simon so true how big of a deal is this simon if you're part of a church that's uh, you know teaching these things how concerned should you be and is this a hill to die on yeah and people will often say well look this isn't a gospel issue and so you don't want to die on on the uh, the hill of of genesis and the issue of the days of creation and the age of the earth and adam and everything but actually well the gospel flows out of that history in genesis um yeah and true if you think about what the gospel is the gospel actually means good news and why is the gospel good news it's good news because it addresses the problem of the bad news that we are sinners in Adam, that we actually need the last Adam to save us from our sin. And so if you deny there is a first historical man named Adam, then you, you basically deny the gospel because you have no one to liberate you from sin and death. Why did Jesus go to the cross and, and die in a tree if we're all basically good people? Yeah. You don't need a savior if there wasn't a first man, Adam. Jesus comes as the last Adam to redeem and reconcile a fallen humanity. So actually what we believe about Adam, what we believe about the history in Genesis, because we're dealing with God's word here. Yeah, it is a hill to die on. It's it's something which we should contend for because the whole Bible is founded upon that history being true. And so if you don't have that first man, Adam, why do you need the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so, yeah, this is a hill we should die on. And if you're in a church caught up in that sort of teaching where your your pastor will just ridicule Genesis, and if he's denying there is a first man called Adam, then that's a, a serious marker for you to think about, should I be in uh, this place? Yeah, so true. Simon, what is theistic evolution and what are those that champion it trying to achieve? Yeah, so it's a good question, David. Theistic evolution is just the idea that God used the process of evolution to create the world. So the idea that man comes from a common ancestor hundreds of thousands of years ago, um, that the world would be billions of years old. That that's basically what theistic evolution is all about. They see evolution as scientific fact that it's it's a proven, it's a given, and therefore we should just accept it. And therefore you should reinterpret the Bible in light of what we read. They would see what we read in nature. They they would say, well, God has given us nature as the 67th book of the Bible. And that's not actually quite true because although God has revealed himself in creation, the Bible never says that nature is the 67th book because that the Bible is propositional truth. It's it's God's written word to us nature um is god's revelation and creation to us it's it's not in the same propositional written truth as scripture yeah. and whereas nature has fallen scripture is not so the end goal um of theistic evolution is basically to 
say that we need to accept modern uh, modern scientific theory of evolution and add it to the word of God. And sadly, once you do that, you begin to, to reinterpret scripture. But he's he's something to think about for people who might be um, playing with that idea. The, the person we all know when we think of evolution is Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin actually went to Cambridge University. He gradu- graduated with a degree in theology. So Darwin knew what was in the Bible. And if anyone you would think would believe in evolution, uh, sorry, believe in God and evolution since he went into the Anglican church, it would be Darwin. But Darwin never actually entertained the idea that God used evolution. He didn't, he wasn't a theistic evolutionist. In fact, towards the end of his life, he would describe himself as an agnostic. And so if you want to be consistent, then you'll probably end up like Charles Darwin, denying the gospel, denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sad place to end up if you're consistent yeah 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 thank you simon at times it can feel that we're a small remnant fight in the fight for biblical creation when you look at the history of the christian faith what have been some of the biggest influences in drawing people into a false understanding of creation yeah well sadly one of the if you if you look back at the early church um and people like uh, augustine and the church father origin now augustine was great in many ways but they sort of um, took on the philosophy of the day, new sort of neoplatonic thinking, and they um, wouldn't have necessarily believed in the truth of Genesis being actual history. Augustine says some things that might give that impression, but because he was playing with the philosophy of the day and adding that to the text of the Bible, he he believed God created the world in an instant like that. And Origen tried to allegorize the text because, again, he was adding sort of Neoplatonic thinking into the Bible. And so once you try and take the the popular thinking of the day and add it to the Bible, then you basically change the meaning of the text of Scripture. And as you move on in history, that's what happened when in the 1800s, men like Charles Lyell and James Hutton, who came up with this great theory of the age of the earth, you know, you saw theologian after theologian begin to adopt an old earth interpretation of the Bible. And then along comes Charles Darwin, who builds on the back of men like Charles Lyle and James Hutton. And he basically says, well, look, he's the theory of evolution. And so what do the theologians do? Well, God used evolution to create the world. And so we need to be aware of not taking the popular ideas of the day, that contemporary in society and adding them to the word of God. Rather, we need to use the word of God to challenge that thinking in the day and show people where they're in error in their, in their way in thinking. So true. So true. Simon, in your line of work, I'm sure you've lost count of how many people would have said to you, secular science has clearly proven that the earth is millions of years old. How do you normally answer that, Simon? Yeah, again, so when people say science has proven this, science has proven that, the first question to ask people, what do you mean by science? Because if you just think about that word science, it just means, if you look at its its definition in the dictionary, it just means to know. And there are different ways of knowing about God's world. There's what we call um, observational science, which is one way to know about the world where you repeat um, tests uh, and do predictions. And that's good science. In fact, that sort of science actually came out of the Reformation. 
it was a reformation in theology that began a reformation in science so actually when people say well science disproves the bible well the history of science would would show that to be absolutely false because many of the first founders of modern science were all christian many of them not all of them but many of them were but then is what we call historical science which is your belief about the past when you weren't there to see what went on and we would say well that's what evolution and millions of years is really when you think about it because when people say well the big bang is fact well what scientist was there to to witness the big bang well no one was we that obviously so it's it's what people believe happened in the past and if the current data in science shows that to be wrong then you need to readjust your thinking and here's the other thing we need to to keep in mind when people say science says this or science says that we need to say well actually science doesn't say anything science is a tool science is quiet it's scientists who say things about earth's history about the world being millions of years old and scientists have prejudices they have biases and many scientists whether they willingly acknowledge this or not do their science in light of the philosophy of naturalism and the assumption of uniformitarianism naturalism is basically the idea that nature is all that exists there's no such thing as the supernatural and uniformitarianism uh, i just talked about charles lyle and james hutton they basically helped this principle that basically the present conditions of the world are the way it's always been slow gradual processes and so scientists when they have those two things in mind naturalism and uniformitarianism it's no wonder they come up with great ages for the earth and long long periods of time because under those assumptions that makes sense of the world but if you have different assumptions not naturalism but supernaturalism that god created the world supernaturally he spoke it into existence over the period of six days and then it's not uniformitarianism the rates and conditions in the world have always been the same because since there was a global flood in the days of Noah, the global flood would would upset the rates and conditions in the world. And it would lay down the majority of the rock layers that we see in the world. And that's where people really get the great age of the earth. The idea that the rock layers that we see around the world are millions of years old. But the idea of a global flood destroys uniformitarianism. And so when people say science says, you just got to remember, it's not science saying something, it's scientists. And what are the biases and prejudices those scientists have uh, when they think about these issues? Yeah. And there's a fight on every front, isn't it? So I mean, even as you're speaking there, even the global flood is something that people argue against. There'll be people that say, no, 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 it was a local flood. <laughs> this is another thing that you come up against, Simon. Is it? How would you just briefly answer that objection? There's a couple of ways, David. I mean, Genesis talks about the whole world being evil uh, and wicked um, before God. Um, well, was that just part of the world or was it the whole world? Well, that the Hebrew text would clearly indicate it's not a local part of the world. It's all the world was evil in the sight of, of God. And because of that, God brings a global flood. And when you read in Genesis 7, it tells you that all the high hills were covered up up to 15 cubits in depth now we know that water seeks its own height and so if all the high hills are covered then it has to be a global flood no part of the earth was left untouched by the waters of the flood and 
after the flood, what happens? Noah um, comes off the ark. Um, he, he worships God and God promises Noah he will never destroy the world again through a flood. And he makes that covenant with Noah, um, with the animals, with the earth to never destroy the, lo- uh, the world through a local flood again. But since the time of Noah, if, if you think the flood was local, well, how many local floods have there been in the world? Which would mean what? God has broken his promise. We know the yeah. Bible teaches that God doesn't break his covenant, doesn't break his promise to a thousand generations. So there's another indication that the flood is a global flood, not a local flood. And then lastly, Jesus in the New Testament and Peter affirm a global flood. Jesus looks at the flood and says it's like the judgment to come is the judgment to come at the end of the age going to be a local judgment well no quite because you can't use a a global judge a a local judgment to say the future one is going to be a global judgment it must be a global judgment in the past and noah's day for it to be a, a global judgment in the future at the end of the age yeah, so good. Really helpful stuff, Simon. Thank you. Another question I'm sure you've answered a, a million times is that the Bible doesn't mention dinosaurs and science tells us they existed billions or millions of years ago. Uh, so how can your position be true, Simon? What do you say to that? Yeah, that's true. The Bible doesn't use the word dinosaur because the word dinosaur, um, David, wasn't invented till 1841. Um, by Sir Richard Owen, who actually was the man behind the Natural History Museum in London. And he built the Natural History Museum, in his own words, to to glorify God and to exhibit the wonderful beasts that God had made, the dinosaurs. And so uh, he had no problem with, with dinosaurs, but he invented that word dinosaur, terrible lizard, in 1841. When you think about um, the King James Version of the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible wasn't translated until 1611 so it's no wonder we don't find the word uh, dinosaur in the bible but god does tell us that he created the great beasts in on day six on day six and man in his image on that same day and so what are dinosaurs dinosaurs technically according to scientists would be animals that walk on land um not necessarily that are in the, the seas but that walk on land. So God created them along with Adam and Eve on day six. And people say, well, that's ridiculous because T-Rex would have eaten <laughs> Adam for lunch. But here's the thing. Uh, the original creation, the Bible tells us, was very good. And man and the animals were vegetarian to begin with. And people will say, well, T-Rex had massive teeth. Well, that's sort of irrelevant because there are animals today with massive sharp teeth like pandas. Pandas eat um bamboo to on their diet and if you've ever seen a fruit bat fruit bats have massive teeth massive sharp teeth and it's obvious what fruit bats eat fruit and so just because you have sharp teeth it doesn't mean you're going to sort of be a a, a carnivore so dinosaurs created by god on day six with man in a very good world where there was no sin and death and suffering and they would get on the ark with noah um Probably small, small animals would get on, not massive um, dinosaurs, because remember, God told Noah, take two of every kind of animal and they would have come off the ark after the flood. And actually, there's a lot of great examples. I won't go in now into depth into that. But if you look on the AIG website, you'll see lots of great examples of dinosaurs living um, contemporary with with modern man. And so I'd encourage 
the viewers, David, to go and look on AIG and look at some of those great examples. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Simon. When we consider the rich diversity of people living on our planet today, people with different color skin, different hair types, if they've got hair, how did this become the case when we start off with one man and one woman, Simon? Yeah, it's a common question, David. Um, if Adam and Eve were the first um, couple, where did you know where did we all come from? How do how do we see different shades of skin in the world? Well, the more scientists look, creation scientists look at the text of Genesis and look at genetics, they would argue that Adam and Eve would probably have been middle brown. They wouldn't have been pasty white like me, or they wouldn't have yeah. had a, a darker skin from someone maybe he comes from Africa, they would have been somewhere in between, which was why when they had their children, they would have had a rich diversity of children, anywhere from looking like me to looking like someone maybe who comes from the continent of Africa, because they would have had that variation in their genetics because they probably would have been middle brown. Now, as you fast forward um, in history, you, you get to the Tower of Babel because people will say, well, where did all the different races of people come from? And we really need to think about that term race because actually the Bible tells us that there is only one race, the human race, and we're descendants of Adam. And so the reason we'd see different people groups in the world with different features is because of Babel, when man rebelled against God again, God had to disperse the nations. And as those nations go around, they get locked into different places and they're going to sort of, you know, develop the same traits, the same uh, skin shade, um, not color, because we all have the same color. We all have the same middle brown melanin, just some have more or less. But as you fix people in certain locations, they're going to have the, the, the same shade of skin, the same looks on their faces, that sort of thing. And so Babel really helps us understand why we see um, different people groups in the world today but it's consistent with what we read in the text of genesis that god originally created adam and eve and then dispersed the people at the time of the yeah. tower of babel yeah really good really helpful simon thank you just as we know adam was a real historic figure we know too that eden was a real historic place what do we know about its location yeah so if you look at the text of genesis it, it actually lists a number of rivers that come out of Eden. It, it gives us a, a geographical place, which actually tells you you're talking about history here. You're not talking about myth. You're not talking about fable. It lists place names and um, the different rivers, Gihon that come out, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in Eden, Eden is a location in the garden. And so people will say, well, where is it today? Is it somewhere in the Middle East? Because if you look at a map it, in uh, the Middle East today, you'll see rivers like Tigris, Euphrates, et cetera, et cetera. And people say, well, the Eden must have been in the Middle East. But actually, you've got to remember um, that Eden and the whole world was destroyed in the global flood. And so we can't really say that Eden was in the Middle East. And then people say, well, how come you've got this river that's exactly as it is or near to exact how it is in genesis in the middle east today well think about you know when the pilgrims left this country to go to america what did they do they took with them place names because you have places in america like cleveland i, I yeah. grew up 
near a place called Cleveland in the Northeast. You have a place called New York. Well, you have York here and so on and so forth. The pilgrims took the names from this country and took them to America. And so after the flood, what would probably have happened? People would use the names they had before just in in a different world. And so, yeah, when we think about where's the Garden of Eden, well, the Garden of Eden is no more. It would have been destroyed at the time of the flood. Yeah, fascinating stuff, Simon. So good. Uh, along with the first Adam came original sin. Explain to us what this is and what impact it has on us today. Yeah, David, great question. If you, and, and here's the thing, when we think about the doctrine of original sin, it basically is stating that we are sinners in Adam, that Adam is the federal head of the human race. God, he is the first man uh, God created, and he created Adam to reign over his creation. And so when Adam fell, he he didn't, his sin just didn't affect him. It affected his posterity those who who came after him those who were descended from him and there's been people in history like um the british monk pelagius who tried to argue well no adam's sin just affected himself it didn't affect his descendants and of course if we know church history augustine rose up and had to sort of contend against pelagianism and pelagius pelagianism was defeated uh, um by Augustine, because each and every generation struggles with this doctrine. You know, is man good, basically good, or is he a sinner by nature? Well, the Bible tells us, Paul in Romans 5, he tells us, he, he parallels the one man Adam with the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Death, sin, disobedience came through the one man. Righteousness and obedience came through the other man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Romans 5 clearly lays out this doctrine of original sin, that we are sinners guilty in Adam. That doesn't mean we're not responsible for our own sin. We are. But the reason we sin is because we are sinners in Adam. He is the federal head of the human race. And so it's it's a vitally important doctrine, because if you were the doctrine of original sin then you end up really questioning the obedience of christ why do we need this last adam the lord jesus christ and so yeah we must hold on to that doctrine of original sin that we are guilty sinners in adam we may not like that it may be distasteful to us but it is a biblical teaching before the fall of Adam, we see the introduction of the serpent, which leads us to ponder on what happened in heaven before this point. What do we know about the fall of Satan and the fallen angels that fell with him? Yeah, this is a see. Uh, a lot of people will say there are texts in the Bible that indicate uh, and talk about Satan's fall, especially sort of Ezekiel twenty-eight. Some, a lot of Christians do read that as the fall of Satan. Um, I actually don't agree with that view. I don't think that is about the fall of Satan. I think that is about the fall of Adam. It's it's not say, talking about Satan. It's actually talking about Adam. Adam is this king priest as God designed him in, in Eden. You've got to remember Ezekiel 28 is actually in a very difficult book of the Bible. Ezekiel's prophetic, apocalyptic. It uses very poetic language. And so um, and that's not just my view, by the way, that was sort of the, the, the early view of people that Ezekiel 28 was referring to Adam, not to Satan. And so I would say, actually, the Bible doesn't really tell us much about the fall 
of Satan. In fact, it tells us very little about the fall of Satan. Other, other, all it tells us really that Satan is a is a real creature. He 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 is um, an angel. He's a fallen angel. And Jesus described him as as the the, the prince of this earth, the ruler of this earth, um, who would be soon cast out because of Christ's death on the cross. And so, unfortunately, David, there's not a lot I can I can give you on 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 the fall yeah. of Satan because actually I don't think the Bible concentrates an awful lot on that because its its message is really about the redemption of mankind that's come through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Old Testament focuses on the person of that the come in Messiah, the new Testament obviously tells us that person has come. And so there, there might be little things here and there, but the big texts that people go to like Ezekiel 28, I, I don't actually think that's about Satan. Others might say, I disagree. That's fine. And we could have that debate. It's not a major debate we need to have, but yeah, I think there's very little actually in the Bible that tells us about the fall of Satan. Yeah. And that's an important example, isn't it actually to, for us to remember not to speak where scripture doesn't speak because we can get yeah. ourselves into all sorts of problems when we do that right simon yeah i think calvin said didn't he we we stop we stop speaking when scripture stops speaking yes yeah exactly that yeah exactly that in your book you point out that over the last couple of centuries much of the church's focus has been on christ's divinity to the point that aspects of his humanity are sometimes overlooked tell us about that simon why is it important that we hold a balanced view yeah um we absolutely need to defend the deity of christ because it is an attack doctrine but we also need to realize jesus um wasn't only truly god he was truly man he came into the world um and took on humanity john chapter one tells us in verse 14 that the word who is in the beginning with god um who who was the one who created all things who is god became flesh and dwelt among us and so we can ask that question well why did jesus take on a, a human nature well obviously it goes back to the book of genesis because paul describes jesus as the last adam there was a first man adam and there was a last man adam the lord jesus christ so jesus was truly god and he was truly man and as the last adam why did he come into the world well think about it in the garden, what did Adam do? Adam disobeyed the law of God. He God told him this one thing, don't eat that tree. And what did he do? He ate from the fruit. He disobeyed the law of God. And so Jesus came to succeed where the first Adam failed. He came to fulfill the law of God. In Matthew 3.15, it talks, Jesus talks about, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? Where do we find God's righteous requirements in uh, the law of God? That's, that's what we see in, in the law. We see God's righteous um, requirements. And so when you think about it, we often focus on, on the death of Christ. You know, why uh, Jesus died for sinners. And that's an amazing thing to think about for us. But Jesus didn't just die for us. He lived for us. If all Jesus had to do was die for us, he could have come down on on Good Friday, died on the cross, yeah. you know, been in the tomb three days and three nights, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and gone back. But Jesus didn't just die for us, David. He lived for us. He lived a perfect life of obedience because when we come to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we gain his righteousness because he fulfilled all righteousness. He takes upon himself our sin as sinners in Adam, but we gain wonderfully the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing we contribute to our salvation, not one bit, but we gain the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why he came into the world as truly man. Yeah. And in the incarnation, did Jesus empty himself of his divine nature, Simon? Yeah, there's a there's a famous text, David, in uh, Philippians chapter two, five uh, through eight, where Paul gets uh, the Philippians to consider the equality that Jesus had um, with God. And it talks about the fact that he took on um, he was in the form of God, but he did not uh, consider that something to be held on to something that he should grasp onto, but became a servant he took on the form of a servant but when you read philippians 2 5 to 8 it's a really important text because it clearly shows the deity of christ in fact most scholars today will tell you quite clearly that that section philippians um 2 5 to 8 was actually an early hymn of the church it's what the early christians would sing about the lord jesus christ that he existed in the form of God. And scholars will even tell you that those words are actually not Paul's words. Those words actually predate Paul because they are an early hymn. It's a, it's a hymn Paul uses. In fact, when Paul tells us that um, Christ existed or was in the form of God, that word was in some translations existed in others um, is a Greek word that's in a, a present participle. So it tells us that Christ continue to be in the form of god he didn't stop being god at all and so that's something we need to think about so christ did not cease to be in the form of god in the incarnation but he took on the form of a servant and he became the god man so jesus didn't empty himself of the form of god because the text does say he emptied himself but how did he empty himself he emptied himself by taking on something else to himself he took on the form of a servant he became truly man it says and and he died even a death on a cross the creator of the world who existed in the form of god stooped so low that he took on humanity and he died and paul says he doesn't just die but he died a death on the cross the most humiliating death you could die a death on the cross and so Paul is trying to teach the Philippians there, you know, to to think, consider why they should treat each other with respect, why they should consider other other people better than themselves, because you consider what Christ did. He was God himself and he came from heaven to earth to redeem humanity. Think about the humility there in Christ. So when the text talks about him emptying himself. And I do discuss this in my book and encourage people to go and get the book. But it's not saying he emptied himself of his divinity. That's not what the Bible teaches. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Yeah. And Simon, these aren't niche uh, theological concepts to ponder while staring at the sky. These are things that are actually entering the church today. You know, some of the most popular false teachers at the moment are actually using this this uh, text and teaching it out of context and and saying therefore because 
Christ emptied himself of his divinity, all of the miracles that he'd done on earth are therefore fair play for us to be able to do today. And that's where you see, uh, you know, churches like Bethel, uh, yeah. you, you know, where they're trying to pick, raise people from the dead and, 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 and manufacturing all sorts of um, false miracles under this guise, right? Yeah, people um, throughout history have used that text um, wrongly because they want to teach false things. People in the past have used that text to say, yeah, Jesus emptied himself of his divinity and on in his incarnation he was only a man and therefore he he um was limited by the cultural context so yeah jesus believed in genesis jesus believed that moses wrote the torah but now we know more today and so jesus was wrong he was just a man of his time and as you say people in the sort of the bethel movement try and misuse that text but again the thing to do is to read it in context read it against the other um pauline epistles and see what Paul tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And nowhere in Paul's works will he tell you that Jesus ceased to be God in his incarnation. Yeah. Jesus was the son was God from eternity past. He was the one who created the world and he came into humanity to redeem humanity. And that is a, is a, is a great teaching in in scripture that we need to grasp and not misuse just because others have misused it yeah yeah absolutely so i mean tell us about what christ as the final adam achieved for those that are his yeah that's a great question um david you know when you read sort of romans chapter five if you go and look at the beginning you know those verses 12 to 21 will talk about paul compares um the one man adam to the one man the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Romans 5, 1, which begins the context, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. There's a legal aspect in our salvation because we trust in Christ, because of that faith, we are justified. We have peace with God. So there's a legal aspect to our salvation, but there's also a relation, relational aspect to our salvation, which comes through Christ, the last Adam, because in verse 11 in Romans chapter 5, he talks about the fact that um, we've received reconciliation. And so we have this um, relational aspect to salvation where we are no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer at war with God. We've been justified. There's a legal aspect and we've been reconciled. There's a relational aspect in our salvation. And that's what Jesus Christ as the last Adam brings for us. That one man, Jesus Christ, who obeyed the law of god that's what paul tells us in um romans 5 19 for as by one man's disobedience the men that the many were made sinners but by one man's um obedience the many will be made righteous yeah that's what christ does for us we gain as i've already said we gain his righteousness we are justified by god because of christ and we are reconciled to god the father because of the last adam the lord jesus christ so that's what christ gives to his people yeah amen well that's a great place to take a break we're going to take Absolutely. a break well simon thanks again for your time love the book always love catching up with you before we let you go just take a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also let people know how they can keep in touch with your work yeah you can keep in touch with my work if you go to the the website answersingenesis.org if you type my name in you'll see numerous articles that i've written on various issues regarding genesis or 
deity of Christ, the authority of scripture, um, messianic prophecy, that sort of thing. Um, and you can also keep in contact, as, we, as I said at the beginning, my wife and I run a website leading them out because in the UK, we're very much involved in the home education movement. And so if you're interested in that, you can find me on there as well. Brilliant. Well, Simon, we're going to make sure that we find all those links. They're going to be in the description wherever you're listening or watching this interview, including a link to be able to go and buy the book, Adam First and the Last. Adam, uh, Simon, thanks again. I'm about to call you Adam then, Simon. <laughs> Simon, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, David. Good to be with you.